0: Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast, where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Revan Kusala coming to you from downtown Los Angeles, from the International Buddhist Meditation Center. Yesterday, I had the privilege of interviewing Roshi Egilku. Roshi Egilku is the abbot of Zen Center of Los Angeles. I had... Spoken to her a few weeks ago at a Hanamatsuri celebration at a Japanese temple in downtown Los Angeles, asking if she'd be interested in giving me an interview, and she said she would. It took us a couple weeks of uh, not this week, not that week to finally get together, and yesterday was the day. Well, as it turned out, the interview lasted over two hours. So what I've done is I'm going to do the interview in three parts. This is part one of the two-hour interview with Roshi Egoku, the abbot of Zen Center of Los Angeles. This is my interview with the abbot of Zen Center of Los Angeles, Roshi Egoku also known as Wendy Egyoku Nakao. Roshi Egyoku, uh, were you born uh, a Buddhist, or did you come to Buddhism later in life?
1: I came to Buddhism later in life. My parents uh, did not adhere to any particular religion. They were an interracial, interreligious marriage. (laughs) <laughs> so my mother was a Portuguese Catholic, but yeah. not a practicing Catholic, and my father was Japanese, who really turned his back on any kind of you know, spiritual, religious practice, until much later in life. But his father, later in his life, became a tenrikyo priest, yeah. tenrikyo minister. Both my grandparents on his side uh, were tenrikyo priests who had a small temple in the village that we grew up in, in Hawaii.
0: What what did you see in Buddhism that led you to discover it? Was there something that you heard or saw, people that you met? What was the inspiration to find out about Buddhism?
1: You know, as a child, I had a great question about what was the meaning of life. Mm -hmm. And because my family was so diverse and the religious issue was never really dealt with, um, this question intensified throughout my childhood. So, uh, in those days you could ask a child, um, what is your religious orientation? I don't know if that can be done now in school forms, but uh, every time I would bring home a form, my mother would fill in something different, you know, Protestant, Catholic, whatever, whatever came to her mind. So this just increased my question about, you know, what was I and who am I and what is this about? And, um, uh, I didn't come across Buddhism until I was uh, at the university. But even then, it didn't really spark anything in me. Um, but after I had graduated in, uh, from graduate school, I was attending a summer school class on Asian art. It was actually Japanese architecture, because I had hoped to go to Japan and, and you know, get educated about some of the things before that. And it turns out that the professor who was leading the class, uh, Dr. Glenn Webb, um, announced that a Zen priest was coming from Japan to lead a Zen sesshin. This was at uh, Seattle, Washington, mm-hmm. and if anyone was interested, to please come and talk to him.
0: And and what what year was this? Do you remember approximately? This would
1: have been approximately 1975. Okay. Summer of 75, okay. and so. I thought, well, that sounds interesting. So after class, I went up to him and I said, Professor Webb, uh, could I do this retreat? (laughs) Not knowing a thing about it. And he said, well, of course. And I said, well, you know, what do I need to do? And he said, well, uh, you know, have you ever sat before? And I said, no, I didn't even know what that meant. And he said, well, you might want to come and join my sitting group that meets every Wednesday night at some, I forgot the church in Seattle. And I think I went twice, had no instruction, no idea what was going on, but um, soon after I went on this seven day session
0: Wow did
1: it, <laughs> it was wow <laughs> did it
0: did it seem natural to you if you didn 't have any instruction and you simply sat did Did you find your place sort of intuitively
1: that 's a really interesting question i don 't know that it seemed natural. You know we went off to Vashon Island in the middle of the Puget Sound Mm. and I think there were maybe 17 of us. Uh, Professor Webb was there, he did the translating and a priest from Japan who really spoke no English. And he did the sesshin in a very strict style which was we would sit for about an hour and then he would ring a bell and we would unfold our legs and then he'd ring a bell again and then we'd (laughs) sit again. And we would do our walking meditation like 20 minutes after lunch and that was it. There was no real instruction. Uh, for example, when I heard people being hit with the keisako, with the teaching stick, I didn't know what was going on. You know, I'd look around and think, what on earth is happening here? And, um, but he would talk during the sitting. He would start preaching about something or other and uh, Professor Webb would translate. Did I find my place? You know, it's really interesting. I did, but I would never have said that at that moment. Mm -hmm. Something opened up in me. Mm -hmm. Something very deep was stirring in me um, to the degree that when I left the retreat after seven days, you know, it never occurred to me to leave the retreat Mm -hmm. and the whole time. Um, but when I left the retreat, I went home to my husband, and I just said, I'm leaving you.
0: Wow. And what did he say?
1: Well, (laughs) 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 he said, wow, (laughs) just like you. (laughs) You know, I had done the retreat on a dare, because when I heard about, when Professor Webb finally did tell me that we would be sitting in silence for a week. You know, that somehow stirred something in me as well. So I'd gone home and said to my husband and his best friend who was visiting that um, this opportunity had arisen and I somehow was very interested in it, although I knew nothing about it. Well, my husband was sort of, you know, not thinking that was so hot. And, but his best friend said to me, I'll bet you $50 you can't sit still and be quiet for a whole week. So I said, okay, I accept the challenge. So when I came home, and I think said that to my husband, you know, it was sort of in that context, if I had accepted this dare, (laughs) and then I'll look at what was happening. You know, it's like I think all of his fears, of course, manifested for him. But I uh, really could not articulate what had happened to me. Except that something had moved so profoundly in me, I, need, I had to follow it, mm-hmm. you, you know, or mm-hmm. it was just pushing me to, to do something about this, whatever this was.
0: And it seems you needed to follow it alone. Yes. Okay. Yes. So it was a personal journey.
1: It was a personal journey, and mm-hmm. I knew I had to step out of my present situation.
0: Mm-hmm. And where did that lead you next then? Did you do another retreat? Did you find a center or a teacher?
1: Well, there was no center, but there was a group of us who sat with Professor Webb at the University of Washington Art Building. So I began to do that. Uh, We sat, uh, I think, once a week, like on a Wednesday night. Mm -hmm. And then we would sit on the weekends Hmm. uh, at his house or a community house in the area that he lived. And I would get up at 3 in the morning and drive around Seattle and collect all the people who sat, and we would drive over Lake Washington, <laughs> wow. and then we would sit for a whole day.
0: Yeah.
1: So we sort of sat, you know, I became a fanatical sitter. Uh, I sat all the time. Something had just opened up in me, although I had no idea what it was. I had no clarity about what I was doing. Um, and we were all new sitters. You know, this was new for everybody in our in our group. Yeah. And, of course, the group was wonderful. They're very diverse people, and... Um there were people that I hadn't really spent a lot of time with, you know, people who were seekers and questioning. And really, one of the things that had happened to me is I had been living out my agenda. You, you know, you grow up, you go to school, you get your education, you get married, and then you have a family, and you get a good job, and, <laughs> you know, the whole thing. And really, at that time... How old was I? Maybe 26 or something like that. Um, It's like I had come to the end of that road. I had done it all, except I hadn't had any children. You know, and that was supposed to be coming up, so, so to speak. So I was living very unconsciously, but living out the agenda that my parents had set out for me. And I think what this session did was it just cut through that and said, you know what? This is not the road you should be going down on. This is not the path for you, you, you know. And it's sort of just cut through that in a very profound way. So the thing I hadn't done was to have a family. And at that time, my husband and I were exploring uh, adopting a child. And it was very interesting because in the middle of the adoption procedures, and, you know, we were considered a, a viable candidate for adoption, um, but in the middle of, of one of the counseling sessions, I remember this very well, I started to cry. And so the counselor leaned over and said, Oh, I know that this is very stressful, you know, because you need to go through so many things to to show that you're an acceptable candidate. And I remember sitting back in my chair and saying, I'm not crying about that. I'm crying because I realize I should not be going in this direction. And I should not be in this marriage. I should not be having any of this go further. And of course, you know, everyone was shocked, including myself, because it was like just something came out of me and told the truth. It's like I started to connect, became conscious about my life and what I was really doing. And so... um That led me to go even deeper into sitting, and at some point, one of my co-workers knew I was sitting, and he was also a seeker in the Rajneesh tradition. And um, he brought me uh, an ad, a poster from Zen Center of Los Angeles. Now mind you, we were in Seattle. And it was one of their early posters that said, Zen living ain't easy. And there's a picture of a woman who's just laughing, you you know, and then it said year-round training program. And I thought, you know, this could be really the thing for me to do. So I wrote a proposal. I was uh, a librarian at uh, a community college in Seattle, and we uh, had tenure as faculty, so we could do sabbaticals. So I wrote a proposal for like a six-month sabbatical, and... uh, I forgot what it was. The thrust had to do with exploring Zen Buddhism. Uh, I can't remember how I tied it in, but I really wrote a great proposal. <laughs> and I was, I was given this sabbatical for six months as a very new faculty. So uh, much to everyone's surprise, you know, I would be gone for six months. So that plus summer meant a nine-month leave. And uh, I came down to ZCLA. January 1, 1978 hmm. to do six months of intensive training and then the other three months I left open to do whatever it is I thought I needed to do.
0: Now at that time, I, I know uh, both our centers, International Buddhist Meditation Center and Zen Center of Los Angeles, within a couple of years were founded in this neighborhood which is the Koreatown section of Los Angeles uh, for people listening in downtown Los Angeles. Um Could you give me just a little history of Maizumi Roshi and why he decided uh, downtown Los Angeles would be a good place to start Zen Center of Los Angeles?
1: Maizumi Roshi came to this country in 1956 as a missionary for the Soto School. And he spent most of his time at Zenshuji, which is the headquarters of the Soto sect in the U.S., located in Los Angeles, in Little Tokyo in Los Angeles. And about... 10 years after, in 1967, he moved, he left the Japanese American community, Enzen Shuji, to start a practice center for people outside of the Japanese community. So he ended up renting a house on Serrano Street, which is a few blocks from where ZCLA is today, and I'm sure at that time it was a very different kind of neighborhood, you you know?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes,
1: yes. He wanted to teach uh, people who really wanted to meditate. And so he rented the small house and people started to to come. And he already had met some of the uh, American teachers. Now, the Japanese were also Americans, but I'm referring to those who were not of Japanese-American ancestry. And, uh, for example, Bernie Glassman had met him uh, while he was at Zenshuji. And so uh, these people started to come and practice with him. So that would have been, I don't know, maybe in 65, 66. And then in 67, um, the Zendo, that the ZCLA Zendo was purchased. So we consider that the sort of the founding date of ZCLA, the founding <laughs> year um, of ZCLA. And at that time, as you mentioned, um, the venerable Thich Thianon was just a few blocks away. Uh, with, we were within, what, a four-block walking distance mm-hmm. from each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, being maybe the first Vietnamese mm-hmm. uh, Zen master to come to the West, he became a uh, receiving point for the Vietnamese refugees. Mm-hmm. So this area then just became a very dynamic area for uh, Buddhism Mm -hmm. to begin to take place in America was seeds, you you know, they're really the seminal teachers, among the seminal teachers, to come to America. So Maizumi Roshi, with the help of his students then, uh, bought the Zendo and then eventually bought uh, almost all of the city block that we're sitting on, we're now sitting on half of it because part of it was sold later on. But uh, And then he attracted really quite a following. Of course, we remember this is the late 60s. So the, our country then was very, very different in the 1960s with the Vietnam War, and many people were, were leaving home and protesting the war. And uh, also our social structures were, were tumbling down. So whole families came to ZCLA, or people left their families, uh, to come to ZCLA, you had um, drugs were new in the culture, you know, just all the things that the '60s were mm-hmm. were happening, and somehow this kind of uh, shift in the culture uh, opened up a whole space for this kind of spiritual search and spiritual practice. So ZCLA was sort of founded in the midst of all of that.
0: And then you came down. You got your sabbatical all arranged, you came down. What was your first impression after coming from Seattle and, and sitting locally up there and then coming to Z C L A?
1: Right. I remember I arrived on January first, nineteen seventy eight. And the center was sort of closed then because it was just after, you know, the, the new it was the start of the new year and everybody was taking a little break. And um ZCLA had already been going for 10 years, which you know is not a long time. Yeah. So there must have been about, I don't know, almost a hundred people living here at the time, maybe mm-hmm. 70, 80. it was, it was big. Mm-hmm. And you know, I fit right in in, in a way because people were sort of my age or a little older, and they all had this incredible passion for the Dharma and for sitting you know mm-hmm. and then here was a Zen master now I didn't relate much to the whole Zen master thing because although I sort of had a teacher in Seattle um, the the teacher from Japan was not in residence there he sort of came and went and professor Webb was a very modest man and didn't hold himself up as our teacher but he basically kind of uh, took care of the group and made the space for it to practice, but it's not like he was positioned as a teacher in the way that we think of teachers today.
0: Would you call him more of an a facilitator?
1: Did yeah. he facilitate? The- he was a very serious, lifelong sitter, okay. you know, who sat two hours a day and had gone to Japan on a Fulbright Fellowship.
0: Oh, wow.
1: He was um, a Juilliard, I believe, uh, poised to be a real concert pianist. When he met, when D.T. Suzuki attended one of his concerts and D.T. Suzuki went backstage. Now, I didn't find this out until just recently.
0: What a great story. D.T.
1: Suzuki went backstage and complimented him on his playing. Glenn was so moved by the presence of D.T. Suzuki and <laughs> found that he was a Buddhist that he just sort of made up his mind to go pursue Buddhism and eventually leaves the whole concert pianist thing behind and gets a Fulbright. And Glenn's parents were also missionaries of some kind. Christian missionaries. Um, but Glenn and his wife then end up in Japan where Glenn does his study. At that time it's an art history. He's an art historian. But at the same time he's going to these temples to see you know, the best of the Zen art. And he's also practicing Zazen and at some point really wants to leave it all behind and become a Zen monk. This, I believe, is in the Rinzai tradition. And the masters there say, no, you will not do that. You have a wife, and I think they had adopted a couple of kids at the time, and you're a Christian, you know, and all of that, so no. We will not make you a Zen monk, but we want you to continue to practice and fulfill the things in your life that you, you know, that you are already doing. So um, when I met my Zen... So you
0: left him, the teacher, the facilitator, and came into the presence of a Zen master. Yeah. And what, what is your take, what was different about those, those two people?
1: Well, it's nothing that I thought about, really, because I was myself very new to spiritual life. Mm. And uh, I didn't think in those terms. And I think, you know, in those early days when we didn't have the books, we didn't have the teachers, we didn't have all the, you know, the situation we have now, we just didn't think like that. You know, we just wanted to sit. You know, all these people came flocking to places like CCLA <laughs> sure. because sure. we sure. wanted to sit night and day. You know, that's the way it was then.
0: Sure.
1: Yeah. And actually, I didn't meet my Zumiroshi right away. I think he was away from the center for whatever reason. The first teacher, like in a private interview role that I encountered, turned out to be Roshi Bernie Tetsugen Glassman, Mm -hmm. who at that time I think had received Dharma Transmission. He was the first successor. Mm -hmm. Either he received it then or shortly thereafter. So he was Tetsugen Sensei to all of us.
0: So he was the senior student at that point.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yes, and so my first private interview was with him, which is interesting because if you fast forward, you know, yeah, to 1996, he be- he becomes my transmission teacher. Yes. And I become a Dharma teacher through him. Yes. Which is very interesting. But anyway, he was my the first one I had interview with, and. um it was very powerful. I'd never been in the presence of someone, I think, with that kind of energy and like boundless space. That that sense of that and and kindness, you know. So I was deeply affected by that. Um, so I began to you know throw myself in the ZCLA schedule which at the time was, you know, 365 days of the year yeah. doing intensive practice, which yeah. just was great for me. Um, I, I, I loved it. I just threw myself into it.
0: Did your practice include um, uh, books? Did you, did you study the sutras? No. Okay. Your at practice the, was sitting.
1: My practice was sitting. Okay. And although I went to Dharma talks, you know, which were given every week, Uh and attended, you know, all that was being provided at ZCLA, I was just immersed in Zazen.
0: Okay.
1: And I had very little insight into what was going on with me. And I remember once I asked my Zumi Roshi a question. I went in at his home to ask him some kind of question. And he looked at me and he said, you know, don't you hear anything I say, (laughs) you know? And I said, Uh "Uh, you know what? I said, I go to all your talks, but you know, you're right. I don't hear a thing. I said, the noise in my head is so great that I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Um. And it's very interesting as I look back, whatever it is that kept me sitting, just kept me sitting. And at one point, um, maybe I'd been sitting for five years, with really very little space in my mind. For five years, I'm listening to myself talk, you know, and going on and on in my head. But about five years had passed, four or five years, uh, and I was still at the center, working at the center. And um, one of our members told me he was going off to the desert to do a retreat with Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein. And I said, oh, who are they? You know, my whole world was this Zen, rigorous Zen sitting. And he said, well, there's the, there are these teachers who are Americans and they encountered Buddhism in uh, Southeast Asia, and they've come back and they're starting to teach Vipassana meditation. I said, well, what in the world is that, you know? and he, And he explained a little bit to me, and I said, well, it sounds interesting, could I go? And he said, yeah, you know, anybody can go. So I went to Maizumi Roshi and I said, you know, I heard about this 10-day ret- retreat with these two people. Um, you know, would it be okay if I went off and did this? And he said, well, of course it's okay. So off I went. Uh, that was with Andy Cooper. Uh, Andy now writes for Tricycle and things like that. You may have encountered his work. And so off, off I went to this thing, and it was a whole new world of Buddhism for me. Yeah. So, so completely different from what I'd been doing. You, you know, you yes. could, you know, sit however you wanted. And <laughs> we were taught these very precise mindfulness practices. In my case, I think it was noting rather than counting the breath, which I could never do anyway, you know. And um, it was just a whole new world for me. And so I did 10 days of that. And I remember being so, like, beginner's mind, like, wow, look at all these people sitting however they want and coming in and out of the meditation hall. And at some point, we had to go to a small group interview, you know, discussion. So there I was in this little group, and and Jack Cornfield was the leader of that. And somebody had asked a question, you know, about well, you know, should I really sit straight up or is it okay for me to wiggle around, you know, what do I do and, and I'm listening to this and of course you understand I'm coming from like a Zen perspective. And Jack, you know, was was uh, encouraging him to just explore and sit however he needed to sit and the main thing was to be mindful the whole time and I just blurted out, oh, for heaven's sakes, why don't you just tell him to sit up? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, where did that come from? You, you know, I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I said that.
0: <laughs>
1: so then the poor guy who asked the question immediately said, oh, oh yeah, it's okay, I'll, I'll sit up, you know. <laughs> it was just really bizarre, the whole thing, you know. But in any case, it was sort of that kind of experience for me. But what happened to me is because I'd been sitting for a long time, And really sitting, I had built up tremendous samadhi. So when I was taught like this noting technique, I could apply it like in an instant. And as a result, really within a short period of time, I saw exactly how my whole mind was working. So I had a very powerful experience in those 10 days. It was so powerful. So the 10 days were over. And I came back to ZCLA.
0: Was it hard to come back after that freedom No it, of sitting?
1: No, not at all. Okay. I came back and I had, you know, this tremendous insight into what was going on in the mind. And so I, you know, resumed working with Maizumi Roshi. And, you know, at that time I really didn't know how to work with a Zen teacher. You know, and uh, Matsumi Roshi was really not the kind of teacher to throw out compliments or affirmations necessarily. And so I remember he'd say to me, cut it out by the root, you know, and I'd go, what the hell does that mean? What's the root, you know? (laughs) What's the root, you you know? So in in some ways he like intensified my search by by doing that. Although, you know, I said, like, what is this guy talking about, you know, at the same time? It was touching me on a very deep level. Sure, sure. When I was at uh, the desert with Jack and Joseph, um, I believe I met uh, Anagarika Manindra, who was the teacher yeah. of Joseph Gostin. I believe he was there on that retreat. And I had met him, you know, like maybe one time. And the first time Munindraji met me, he said... Oh, come to India. And it's like my whole body just went into spasms. Like, oh, my God, go to India. Oh, my God, go to India. You know, I would die if I went to India. Yeah, I don't know what that was about. And so I naturally pushed all of that. You know, I just repressed all of that. But as I returned to ZCLA and started practicing there again... I had this great thing arise in me that I wanted to go do the 90-day retreat um, at Barrie, Massachusetts, at Insight Meditation Center. I felt like there was really something in in that way of practicing that would be very important for me. And I knew that Menindra would be there for the three months and, and Jack and Joseph and some other teachers. So, I sort of arranged my life so that I could go, and I'd come to kind of a crisis point at my practice at, at ZCLA, and so I went to my zemiroshi and I said, I'd, "I'd like to do this 30-day retreat, you know, 90-day, excuse me, it was 90 days," and he said, "Of course, you know, go and do it."
0: When you say crisis, is it you came up against the wall, you 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 plateaued, or you just felt, I got to. Add something to my practice; it stalled. Is that sort of what I came about? up against myself. You came up. Against I
1: came yourself. up against a lot of issues around myself. I see. And I felt that I just needed to step out of the, the environment that I that I was in. Okay. And I talked to my Roshi about them. They were very private issues, mm-hmm. and he was very, uh, very kind. I mean, he understood, you know, the kinds of things I was struggling with. I mean, really understood what they were. And I don't think I had ever been understood so deeply by another human being. And of course, I myself was just beginning to discover, you know, just things about my myself. And, and so that was a very powerful moment for me. So I decided to step out of this whole situation. And, um, Ended up in Barrie, Massachusetts. I mean, I had to do a lot to get there. I had to get okay. my finances in order and my housing. And I mean, basically, I had to give up everything at ZCLA, sure. you, you know, kind of take care of whatever else was swimming around. I don't remember, but I remember it was a lot of work <laughs> to arrange my life to get to Barrie, you, you know. And um, so there I was, September, fall, 1982. 1981, in Barrie, Massachusetts. So this is from 76 to 81, you know. And it was an amazing thing because I don't think I realized what I had bought into. So there I was in Barrie. It was beautiful. I'd never been to the East Coast before with, I don't know, a 100 yogis or something doing this retreat, you know. And we start this retreat, in the very first week, I had an interview with Jack Kornfield. I remember going to him and I said, Jack, you know, I've made this huge mistake. <laughs> you, you know, I don't think I should do this 90 days. Really? Be- because in that moment I realized that it was really about me. And all this time, in all these years of practice, I was trying to be not me. I was trying to be somebody who wasn't me, I was trying to be this ideal person that I thought I should and ought and wanted to be, and that person was not me. And in that first week, I really got that um, it was about me, and I was going to have to be with me, really be with me for these 90 days. You know, it was a very powerful moment.
0: And scary, probably, It too. was
1: very scary. And I'll never forget, you know, talking to Jack. I remember we were standing up in a room. <laughs> I remember this so well. It was on the second floor. And, and he said, well, you know, I know you went through a lot to get here, to arrange your life to do this. And he said, you know, and it's, it's up to you if you will stay or not. But I really want you to think about it carefully. And it was so interesting because in that moment, I felt a part of myself like jump out of the second floor window and run down the road, you know? <laughs> Scared to death taking off. But I stayed. I stayed for the entire retreat. Very, very powerful. In fact, even during those 90 days, I did 10 days solo retreat in a little room by myself. <laughs> So I did the 90 days, and I realized that Manindraji was there. Uh-huh. And so I avoided him because, because, remember, he had said, come to India. Okay. And I was, like, freaked out about going to India. Sure. So I avoided him. But at the, in the third month, somewhere in the third month, um, I was scheduled for a private interview with him. So I went to see him, and he said oh, how long have you been here? And I said, oh, like three months. <laughs> <laughs> really? You know, because I've been hiding from him the whole time, you sure. know. And he says, well, come to India. We're going in January.
0: Another invitation.
1: And, you know, it was amazing. I said, okay.
0: Well, what had changed?
1: I don't know. Okay. I was just open on a different level. Okay. You, you know? Yeah. Now, in the meantime, during these three months, I had told my Roshi that I really wanted to go to Japan to do some intensive study in the tea ceremony, which I loved to do tea, you know. And so he had gone out of his way to arrange my going to the tea school in Kyoto. (laughs) But I decided I was going to India.
0: So both those things at the same time. Yeah. Feast or famine, isn't that the way it works? Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I decided uh, I would go to India, and one day towards the end of the three-month retreat in Barrie, um I was passing by the office at uh, IMS, Incent Meditation Society, and Jack Cornfield stepped out of the office and he said, Oh, uh, you know, Egyoku, uh, Maezumi Roshi is on the phone for you. It was like it's so amazing. So I got on the phone, and I said, Hi, Roshi. And he said, Hi, how are you doing? I said, I'm fine. He says, When are you going to Japan? It's all arranged. And I said, I'm not. I'm going to India. <laughs> and without skipping a beat, he said, India, how great. When are you going to India? Really? He yeah. It was really amazing. And, you know, I don't know what he had to do to untangle the whole tea school mess, because I'm sure he, you know, had gone to great lengths to arrange and, of course. and and not just him, but other people, my tea teacher as well. And I don't know what he did to have to do that, but I'm so ever grateful to him. Um, but uh, I made arrangements then to go to India. And in January, early January of 1982, I flew from Seattle to London, to Dubai, to Calcutta, by myself, trip. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> and somehow managed to be the first one through customs, don't ask me how, in Calcutta, and there I was. It was, it was an unbelievable journey. I and spent three And how did it months. feel,
0: because there seemed to be a lot of resistance initially when you were approached to go.
1: I felt like I had returned home.
0: That was the feeling.
1: That was the feeling in the midst of Calcutta. I loved India. It spoke to me in such a profound way that I knew, uh, you know, I had been there many lifetimes before. Uh, India is just a profoundly moving place and um, so unlike our culture. You know, it's like all the shadows of our culture are right there in your face in India. And what a relief. I mean, nothing has to be hidden there. So I ended up, you know, finding my way to the Mahabodhi Society, which is where we're supposed to gather. That was a whole journey in itself. But I did end up there. We spent some time uh, in Calcutta. And then a group of us got ourselves to Bodh Gaya, and we must have taken a train or I just don't remember how we got there um, but we eventually all met in Bodh Gaya. Uh, that was an incredible thing and in January the Dalai Lama was preaching there so we were in the midst of all of this hustle and bustle of all the Tibetan refugees and the Dalai Lama and then our little band of pilgrims you know and we had the chance to ordain under the Bodhi tree. So um, I ordained with maybe two or three other women, I can't remember now, with the Venerable Tongpulu Sayadaw, who was a Burmese master. Uh-huh. must have been in his 80s at that time. And we took, uh, we were going to take just the eight precepts. Okay. But while we were under the Bodhi tree, uh, the interpreter looked at us and said, You're taking ten? And we said, Yes, we're taking ten. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so we took
1: the ten under the Bodhi tree. Wow, so we became the, novices. The, yeah, we became, the women became novices and yeah. the men, and that included, uh, Joseph Goldstein and Wes Niska and Jamie Barras, they're all, you know, teachers in the Vipassana thing, took the two hundred and whatever. They got the whole thing for the men. Wow. But we took the 10 for the women. But it did mean not handling money and, you know, the noon meal and all of those sure. things. And then we were uh, uh, part of a retreat at the Burmese Vihara. And, you know, it was raining cats and dogs, sea of mud. I mean, it was sort of miserable, the whole circumstance. But we did the retreat. And, you know, I had always had this thing about... It, I really wanted to practice in this very strict monastic way.
0: Yes.
1: And that was something that was very alive in me. So this is how I end up under the Bodhi tree with Changpalu Sayada, who was very austere, you know, Burmese practitioners. Sure. I don't think he, he didn't never lay down and all these things. And um, But I didn't see him after our ordination. But we did get to meet the Dalai Lama and also that wonderful Tibetan teacher, Lama Yeshe. Yes, you know who's yes. since died, but he, he was there. he' just an incredible person, and um, so we're doing this ten day retreat, and you know, and as these you know novices, we weren't allowed to do anything except just meditate, sure. which seems like a good deal. But you know, being waited on hand and foot was sort of unnerving for me. It was like, oh, you know, I, let me let me do something. Let me carry the bucket <laughs> every time we try to do something. You know, we're like shoot away, and it was really very powerful. But somewhere in taking that form for the time that I did, it was a very profound thing for me. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I realized that it was not the form I needed to be following. Okay. That was very profound. So I went to Manindraji.
0: Well, that's, that's it. That's part one of a three-part interview with Roshi Agilku the abbot of Zen Center of Los Angeles for more information on the Zen Center please go to their website zencenter.org that's www.zencenter.org for more information on me please visit my website kusala.info k-u-s-a-l-a.info and if you'd like to email me my email address is kusala at org. Well, that's it. That's it for this podcast. So until the next time, until the next podcast, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all,
1: be free from suffering.